As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. everyone and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Joe Lowry and I'm joined by a woman who not only knows a lot about soccer tactics, but whose MLS team advanced to the Eastern Conference semifinal round of the MLS Cup playoffs over the weekend. It's Jordan Angeli. Hello, Jordan. Just did a, did a little virtual hair flip like it's me. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. I like that intro. It's exciting that I'm uh very small part of a team who's on to the next round. So it's great to be here. It's a little weird, Joe, to hear you say that intro and not our MLS Assist intro. Yeah, Jordan and I, for listeners who don't know, Jordan and I are the co-hosts of the MLS Assist podcast, which launched in the Total Soccer Show feed. And then we've gone out on our own at this point, moved out of TSS Tower. But she and I are back. We're here. We're on baby watch. I think we're all on baby watch as as Taylor Rockwell and his wife are waiting for the arrival of their newborn But Jordan and I are stepping in. We're here to talk about tactics. Jordan, you are the broadcast television analyst for the Columbus crew, and I think you do a fantastic job of distilling a lot of information down that you see during games and communicating it to an audience, and that's more or less what we're doing here. Instead of with games specifically, we're talking more generally about Mm -hmm. tactical terms and and other things of that nature. I put out a call on Twitter asking for questions or for, for definitions that people had or wanted to know about different tactical things. Because sometimes I think, and I don't know if you agree with me on this, Jordan, I think sometimes tactics can be too jargony and too cumbersome, Mm -hmm. and it really can be confusing for people. Have you noticed that before? Well, Joe, I think that you and I even have that too, and we're doing our podcast when we're talking specific MLS game tactics. You can go really into the weeds and get like, you have to go so particular about a certain thing. But really, tactics are really what you're doing to help organize your team or create uh, advantage for your team in certain situations. So I think it can be really nuancing or it can be a big overall arching topic. And I think that's where it can, can kind of get confusing. It can get confusing, and we're going to try to avoid as much confusion as possible. We're not going to spread any uh, any confusion or any highly <laughs> right? jargoned topics in here. We're going to go through and try to give some clarity on a lot of these different things, on things that listeners, you guys, ask for. There were so many that we won't be able to get to yes. them all, but we're going to try to get to as many as we can. 
So Jordan, with that in mind, are you ready to get into some tactical talk? Let's do it. Let's get in the the weeds here and (laughs) cut a path through for everybody. Let's do it. So first up, we have Jonathan Sanders who says, I'd like an explanation on playing with a false nine. Thanks, exclamation point. And and thank you for your politeness, Jonathan. We will absolutely get into that. Jordan, off the top, what is a false nine? Because that gets thrown around a lot. That term is used fairly regularly. But what is it? Well, I think it's important to say what a nine is before you can talk about a false nine. So when you're talking about uh, the position of a nine on uh, the field, it's really a target striker, a player that can sit at the highest line of the defense and either hold up the ball, uh, lay it off, or really be a target in the box. Is that kind of what your definition would be of a nine? Absolutely. It's that central highest attacking player on the field, right? I think you nailed it. So So then Mm -hmm. contrasting with that nine, and I know this is where you were going, what's the difference between that and a false nine? So a false nine lines up in a formation that would play to a nine. Let's just say a team's playing in a 4-3-3. So they have a central forward, a nine, who's playing at the highest line of the opposing's defense, or the deepest line, I guess would be the right term of the opposing team's defense. And so that player then doesn't do the typical things. They actually come off the line and play off that back line in the space, I would say, between the midfield line and the defensive line of the opposing team more often than they are a target player or um, just there to win the ball and lay it back off. They become more of a playmaker. Yeah, it's a playmaker. It's almost a hybrid between a, a traditional striker and a midfielder. They come mm-hmm. back and drop deep and join up with those central players The origin of this term, or at least it's not the origin, but where it was popularized was with Lionel Messi against Real Madrid in 2009. It was Pep Guardiola who called Messi into his office before the game. And this sounds this sounds like it would be entirely made up and fake. But this story does seem to be real. It was Guardiola and Messi talking about how Messi could be best used against Real Madrid in that El Clasico in 2009. And Guardiola decided that Messi was going to play in the middle but not not stay high in the middle, not you know try to body up a center back or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Instead, he was going to drop deep and come come deeper out of that nine spot, hence a false nine, not really doing what a traditional number nine would do. Instead, dropping back, maybe drawing a center back with him, and then allowing the two wingers, who in that game were Samuel Eto'o and Thierry Henry, to burst in behind the back line. So it's that balance between the number nine, instead of staying high, they drop deeper, and that allows space for the other two wide players in a 4 through 3 for example, to mm-hmm. burst in behind the back line and exploit space there. And I think that's where it really starts to become evident of what a, a false nine is doing, is they are trying to engage a defender to pull them out of space. Or if that defender doesn't leave, say the center back doesn't come with the, the false nine into the space that you just were talking about, Joe, then there's a numerical advantage in the midfield to create and be become a playmaker and create combinations. And if you're talking about Messi's combining with Iniesta and Xavi <laughs> and, you know, all those really good playmaking players. So it does have that duality of decision-making depending on what the defense is giving him. The best players and the best tactics are, are players or strategies that put defenders in impossible situations. Yes. And the false nine does that. It puts the defensive team in a, in a borderline impossible situation, does the center back follow the number nine as they drop deeper, in which case then there's a big gap in the back line? 
Or does the center back let him go, in which case he can get on the ball and turn and make things happen? And when that's Lionel Messi, that's a real, real issue for the defense. Yeah. So, so we've kind of gone into what a false nine is. I've got an example, a modern example of a false nine, and that's Roberto mm-hmm. Firmino with Liverpool, with Jurgen Klopp. Instead of having Firmino always stay high and try to pin the back line back, like we might see from uh, Robert Lewandowski a lot of times with Bayern Munich or, or with a lot of different mainstream number nines across Europe, Jurgen Klopp uses Roberto Firmino to drop deeper and provide some playmaking in the central area. Again, then that allows the two wide players, Mo Salah and Sadio Mane, to be really primary attackers and be bursting in and vertical and be direct with how they play, which is just so very Liverpool. And exciting. It can create, if, if you're putting, I think those two examples that you said, it just creates opportunities for other players around to exploit the space that then potentially is created. And it's a, it can be a very high paced, high intensity um, type situation going forward in the other direction. And Jonathan asks, going back to his question, or he says rather, he wants an explanation on playing with a false nine. So explaining the false nine is a big part of that. But also I think a big part of playing with a false nine as a team, you know, when you're in Mm -hmm. your set offensive structure is the idea of balance. We talked about the counter movement as the false nine drops in, the wingers burst in behind. And I think about the U.S. men's national team. They recently played a friendly against Wales in November. I know we're still in November, but a week or two ago, the U.S. played with a false nine. That's something that Greg Berhalter wants to do, but their balance was all off. They had too many players in the same channels, too much congestion, because as the nine, it was Sebastian Legette in that game, dropped in, the wingers didn't burst in behind, or, or the fullbacks didn't burst in behind. There was no no real balance in how the U.S. moved around in the attack. And so if we're looking at how a team should play with a false nine and not just what a false nine is, that balanced attacking approach is a key part of that. Well, it's a key in, in every, every different style that you want to play, but it isn't that exact tactic that you were just talking about with the support players around the false nine is really important if you're going to utilize what a false nine can do, which is create space in behind and it wasn't implemented in that U.S. men's national team the first game I think there were moments where even in that second game they looked like they still were playing with different personnel but had tendencies of still a false nine but there were runs in behind where it was McKenney even getting in behind at some times from the midfield to exploit spaces that were uh, created by I am still struggling with his name. Tell me his name. Joachini. 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 Getting in behind that were created by Joachini, who had a really good performance and kind of mixed it up. Was a traditional nine at moments, but played the false nine as well in, in certain parts of the game, I would say. Okay, Jordan, I think we have tied a nice little bow on the false nine. Hopefully we answered Jonathan's question or, or we've addressed what he wanted us to get at. Do you want to take us on to our next tactical topic? Yes. Okay. We've got a next, the next question is coming from DM. They sent us a DM. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know if that that's was not what happened. Enough, they sent it, it on the timeline, but it's fine, Jordan. <laughs> Can you explain what makes it a double pivot? Okay. So again, I feel like we're always taking a step backwards before we can take a step forward. But to, to lay the groundwork here, we got to start with what's a pivot? You know, what's a pivot in a midfield? Oh, I guess I gave it away a little bit there. A pivot. I'll just say it now at this point. A pivot or a single pivot, which I think is what DM is trying to contrast a double pivot with a single pivot. A single pivot is the the pivot point of the midfield. So let's go back to the 4-3-3 shape. 
Think about mm-hmm. that shape and what it looks like in your head. You've got three central midfielders. You've got one guy who's deeper and two guys who are a little bit higher up the field. And so it's that triangle shape with the deepest midfielder as the, the base point of the triangle. That midfielder, that player is the pivot because they can swing play back and forth. Imagine a pendulum, you know, the, the bottom of a, of a giant grandfather clock mm-hmm. swinging back and forth. It's that midfielder's job to, to direct play from one side, then to get the ball back and swing it over to the other side to try to shift the defense. That's, mm-hmm. that's a single pivot, and I think of it most often as the, the base of a, of a three-man midfield. You know what I, I always think of when I think of a single pivot, and this is so funny, but like the bottom of a pinball machine. Yeah. The ball comes in and you can ping it one way or <laughs> ping it the other. And that's kind of what I think of when I think of a single pivot because it's that one person where if the ball is funneled to them, they have the ability to either switch the point of attack or they're really directing what's going on higher up the field as far as where the ball will be going next. Well, I think we've established that Jordan is more fun than I am because my illustration was a grandfather clock and yours was a <laughs> pinball machine. So I'm going to go ahead so and move funny. us past that because I don't look very good in that in that comparison. But a double pivot. If we've got a single pivot, that's one player at the base of midfield. It follows, logically, a lot of these tactical terms are pretty logical. It follows that a double pivot is two of those guys. Instead of mm-hmm. one player deep, it's two players deep at the base of midfield. And I think about this, Jordan, I'm, I'm guessing you're with me on this. I think about it most often as the two players in midfield at the base of a 4-2-3-1, right? The two right. in that 4-2-3-1. Are you with me on that? I am with you on that. And logically, too, it's still it's still really a 4-3-3 if, if you want to call it that because it's just that triangle flipped the opposite yep. direction. So even though it we tend to call it a 4-2-3-1, it's just an iteration of a 4-3-3. And if only we knew someone who who talked about a team that plays with a double pivot that could give us a little bit more insight into maybe why teams play with that or how it sets up those midfielders to succeed. Gosh. Oh, oh, Jordan, we we do. Jordan Jordan is, again, <laughs> associated with the Columbus crew, and they play a 4-2-3-1 under Caleb Porter. Can you walk us through a little bit of the ins and outs of those two roles mm-hmm. as the, the double pivot players in the midfield? There's, I like playing with a double pivot for a number of reasons is because – one, I think if you're playing with a double pivot, both of those players are pretty good under pressure with the ball at their feet. Not only that, but they're good distributors as well. So they can withstand a little bit of pressure, but they also can pass the ball, whether it's a short pass or a pass over distance. So I think with the double pivot, you have to think of who first sits in those two positions for the Columbus crew. It's Darlington Nagby and Artur, both really good on the ball, both can escape pressure and both can pass and find the right correct pass. Then I'm starting, then the next thing I think of is how can you utilize two players in that role as the double pivot in order to help your team? I, I think more attacking first off. Do you, mm-hmm. Joe? Can yeah, you no, I do as well. I think of the double pivot yeah. as being a more important offensive term than a defensive one. Yeah. The double pivot does a couple of things because of the, the characteristics of those players that I just mentioned on the ball that they can receive the ball and change the point of attack. And it can look, a, the structure of how they set up can look a, a variety of ways. So what, if one of the sixes, so they're both in those double pivots, I would say a six, if one of them comes back to an outside back and provides an angle for how to receive the ball, um, you can see the other six maybe dropping in between the two center backs, that other part of the double pivot to be an outlet to switch the point of attack to the other side. Or if there's a passing lane to go higher up on the field, that opposite side or the weak side six can then press into midfield and receive the ball from that more 
from the past that breaks a line of pressure as a little drop ball and be then another way to get out the other side. So I think the double pivot has a little bit more variety in the positioning of players. But um, I think one of the key things, Joe, to to mention, and I think is used a lot with a double pivot is using that player to drop into between the center backs, that second player in the double pivot. And I was about to say, I think the double pivot name, as logical as it is, is actually a little bit misleading. If we go back mm-hmm. to what the term pivot is, you know, it's it's moving, someone's pivoting between two things. It's that pinball, the little lever at the, the bottom of the pinball machine, right? That's what it is. But with a double pivot, you don't have the two guys standing on top of each other trying to both do that job at the same time. It's always one player doing that and the other player roaming or moving somewhere else. Maybe they're stepping mm-hmm. higher into midfield to leave one defensive midfielder back to be the pivot, or maybe they're dropping between or next to the center backs and then right. you still have the pivot player in midfield, but the other guy has now dropped deeper or, again, moved higher up the field. So it's, it's funny because I think the name makes sense in a lot of ways, but also I'm not sure it's the best way to describe what it actually is. I actually feel like you described that way better than I did because I was trying to move the players and you just said these are the logical ways that they could move. And those movements that you just talked about, Joe, of when one of the two players in the double pivot gets the ball, it's all to create an angle, right? And I think that that is the main thing here is they don't stand next to each other a lot of the times and just have that square setup. There's always an angle. So they're all, they're, um, one's a little bit more advanced at the field or one's a little bit deeper on the field to create angles so they can help each other and assist each other of one, switching the point of attack or two, advancing the ball into a space where their team has a better numerical advantage. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. I think we should continue our central midfield conversation, moving on to a question from Bryce Town or, or Townie. I'm not sure which one it is, Bryce, who asks, can you go over the strengths and weaknesses of playing with a box midfield, essentially four center mids? And I think we absolutely can, Bryce. We will absolutely mm-hmm. talk about that right now. So I interpret this question, Jordan, as, as Bryce talking about a 4-2-2-2 shape or like, you know, any shape that has four central midfielders kind of set up in a square, a little a little box. I think that's where we should start here. So then thinking about the strengths and weaknesses of stacking the center of midfield, but maybe leaving some space open out wide. What are in your head some of those advantages or disadvantages of playing with with everybody kind of in that middle area? I think you said it generally right there is you're going to have numerical advantages, especially if you're winning the ball back centrally. There's a lot more players there, but you're going to have disadvantages or weaknesses in the wings. But the thing with a box midfield, and when when people refer to this for uh, center midfielders, they typically call it a box. It doesn't often look like a box. And I think the reason that it's called a box is because when you watch those players, and if you look at uh, I would say go last year and look in NWSL at the North Carolina Courage. They play in a box formation with four players that can really play any of those spots in the box. There's two attacking midfielders and there's two holding midfielders, really. It's like two tens and two sixes. But 
they also can play in the channel out wide. And I think that the the strength of the box, Joe, comes in you really only know how you shift and move and your patterns of play uh, going forward because you work on those things as if the ball gets to an outside back, does a central player then go into the channel to help the outside back or do they stay central to create a a channel for that outside back where there's no other players in the outside channel, right? That's an advantage to create a 1v1 matchup for an outside back if you have a good outside back with the element of you can always play those two closest midfielders and then have maybe an advantage centrally numerically as well as you're attacking with that outside back. So I think about the the numerical advantages it can create either in the channel or centrally. I'm not sure that this is an advantage specifically of the the box midfield shape, but maybe more it's it's related to the teams that I think about playing with that midfield shape. Okay. You talked about the North Carolina Courage, right? In NWSL last year, they were so incredibly good at doing this and playing out of this shape, but they played so much uh they played with so much aggression and so much fight going forward both with the ball and and without the ball. They they pressed mm-hmm. teams. They stepped in they, they rotated, they moved around in the midfield, as you talked about already. And so I think of a, a 4 2 2 or a, a four kind of box midfield shape. I think of that associated with a, a very aggressive, high-pressing vertical team, uh, maybe RB Leipzig. Less so now under Julian Nagelsmann, but Leipzig at times in the past has played with that similar shape. And if there's anything that the Red Bull teams are known for, it's they're known for their aggressive defending that that shape that 4222 has the three banks of two the the two banks of midfield and then the 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 front two that is a very vertical shape on paper and i think we see that at times on the field teams mm-hmm. really who play that shape a lot of the time try to step forward and constrict space high up the field and so i think that might be another natural advantage of the shape or at least of the teams that play that shape they like to press and typically they're pretty good at yeah. pressing out of that shape Right. And I think a weakness to go on the other side of things, if if they do get, if a team does break their initial press and switch the point of attack, because if you have three banks of two, right, centrally, and you can squeeze to say the left side and really press a team into the left, to, to their right defensive zone on your left attacking side, if they switch the point of attack, there's no one out there. And it could create a, a counterattack going the other way in a lot of space because you've overcommitted, as a part of your plan, the number of players that you have centrally and up top. It's similar to the four four two diamond, which instead of the, mm-hmm. the square in midfield, instead of the box, is just pivoted slightly, to use the term we, ha- we had before in a previous question. It's pivoted slightly, and it, it shifts into that diamond shape. And so it's still four central players, but they're on, uh, on a diamond instead of a square. You see that same thing in the diamond because it's very vertical as well. It's four players in a pretty narrow, squished-in center area. And so as they shift defensively, there's space on the weak side for, for maybe a long diagonal pass from one side where the pressure is to relieve that pressure out to the other wing. And then there's miles and miles of green grass over there. So that's something that the teams who play with a lot of central midfielders, whether that's in a box or in a diamond, that's something that they have to be aware of because if you're not aware of it, you're going to get burned on the wing. Yes, absolutely. All right, good. I think that's a good place to wrap that up. You like you like where we're at with that? Any I, last... love, where, I love where okay. we're at with that, Jordan. Okay. You want to hit us with the next one? All right, Lucas Gloge. 
What is an overload? I think I already said overload once. <laughs> you did. I think you did. I, I, I feel like I've never gotten a solid explanation. Well, we should try to solidify that, Joe. Look no, look no further, Lucas. We will provide that solid explanation right now. An overload. We, we may have said it already on the show unintentionally, <laughs> but an overload is, and this actually fits in really well with the, the box midfield discussion that we just had. Mm-hmm. You know, Bryce was talking about stacking so many players in the central midfield and even thinking back to the false nine. The purpose of a lot of these, these tactics or these formations is to provide a lot of numbers in the middle of the field. And oftentimes when you have a lot of players, if that's four central midfielders, if that's three central midfielders and a number nine dropping in, mm-hmm. you've got four guys in there. You might have more players in that central area than the defense. You might have an overload in that area because you have more players in any one spot of the field than the defense has. It's like a numerical advantage. I think we said that already as well. You have more players in any one spot than the defense. I mean, that's a really solid, fundamentally sound way to attack in soccer. And a lot of teams, when they have the ball, try to create those overloads so that they yeah. can pass around the defense and then move forward into the attack. Right. I think that that's exactly on my point, as it's just a numerical advantage most most of the time, is an overload. To simplify it, I think a lot of the times on the channels or the wings, the outside channels of the field, if if an outside winger or an outside midfielder has the ball and they're squared up 1v1 with a defender, a lot of the times you see, what, the outside back running as fast as they can to overlap, correct? Yep. By that by that run for the outside back, it creates a 2v1. That is an overload. That is trying to overload that space in the channel to create a numerical advantage so you have the benefit of getting a cross-off to help your team take advantage of uh, the situation inside the box. And it's fun, right? Because you can take an overload and then play out the situation in your mind a little bit further. So imagine you're overloading or you're trying to create that numerical advantage on the right side of the field. So you're out mm-hmm. wide on the right and you've got maybe your, your ball side fullback and your winger and your central attacking midfielder and even a central midfielder rotated over to that side. So you've got four players on that wing. The defense has two choices in this instance. They can allow you to pass through them because you've got more players and they're probably going to advance the ball because there's simply more guys than they can defend. They can allow you to do that and break down the wing. Or the next logical thing is that they shift their own defense over to that side and they cancel out the overload. And they say, okay, you've got four guys over here. We're going we're gonna to have some help for our defenders on that side and cancel you out 4v4. At that point, it's even, right? And so if you think about the attacking team, what they might do next is they might play a long diagonal switch over to the other side. They might say, okay, you've now, you've now fallen into our trap and moved your defense over to our overload we're going to play it to the other side where you don't even have any defenders left over there at this point because mm-hmm. you've had to counteract what we're doing with the ball. We can now play it over to a dangerous winger or to a fullback on that far side and have him run. So that's that's kind of an overload to isolate concept of having so yeah. many players on one side, the defense has to adjust or you're going to get burned. And so the offensive team switches it to the other side, to the isolated attacker. That can be a great way to create chances. And I think good to point out to people that if they want to see that in – reality and to see that play out they have an opportunity to do that with Orlando City in Major League Soccer they do that exact thing a lot where they create an overload on the right side bring a lot of numbers over there and then switch the point of attack to where Nani is hopefully in these isolated 1v1 um, situations or he has help from an oncoming Pereira who is a playmaker and those two can really uh, get after teams in a 2v1 situation. 
Yeah, I mean, isolations for Nani is probably a pretty good yeah, attacking it... approach for Orlando City. So I think I think it makes sense, Jordan. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, on to our next question. Loud Questions asks, I should have read that louder, or maybe I'll read this really loudly. No, nah, I don't want to mess up my mic levels. I'm just going to read it normally, Loud Questions. I'm sorry. What's an example of a defensive rotation? Jordan, I'm going to leave this one for you. Okay, well, I feel like you kind of just... I don't really know. Is that what, what kind of what you were just talking about? Is that what you mean? I'm not I'm not really sure. This is one that we're going to have to go back and forth and talk out because I don't hear this term a lot, but I can see it applying to a few different parts of soccer. So I don't know when you yeah. hear that term, how do you how do you see it playing out on the field? I think a defensive rotation happens when a player gets beat and then the next player up needs to apply pressure to the ball therefore it's almost as if everyone behind them has to shift and rotate in order to clog up the most important part of the field, which is in front of the net. So I think of defensive rotations as just something that gets triggered because of a lost 1v1 battle or a nice combination play that pulls a defender on your team out of the equation to defend from the goal side and to get pressure properly on on a team in order for them not to be able to attack quicker. But it's that rotation, that switch, that next man up kind of mentality. I don't know if that's what you see it as. I think of it similarly, I think. When I was mulling over this idea earlier today, I was thinking about it in in a transition moment. Imagine a team loses the ball and then the other team quickly counterattacks up the wing. If the team who lost the ball had their fullbacks high up the field in the first place, those fullbacks are going to be very disadvantaged when they're trying to get back and help their team defend the counterattack. And so if if the fullback lost the ball, let's say it was that player who lost it, the other team's going to counterattack his wing right down that wing. The center back is now going to have to slide over into that outside channel to stop the attack because the fullback is out of the play. So at that point, the center back is wide. The fullback still tracks back, but maybe he tucks inside to where the center back mm-hmm. was, and boom, you've got a rotation, right? It happens when something goes wrong for the defensive team. When you're defending, you don't really want to be the team that has to <laughs> rotate. You know, when you rotate, it's because you've been forced to rotate by a good attacking player, by whatever the situation dictates. But I think of it similarly, when something happens that the defensive team has to adjust to. Right, but you also do when you're thinking about those two things, you also see the best teams in as far as defensive teams go and defensive structure go, they can create those rotations and uh, execute, I would say, those tra- those rotations so quickly and so seamlessly that it's hard to know that something went wrong. Because when that shift comes, say, and a center back goes to the outside back situation and that outside back then comes centrally maybe a holding midfielder drops then into the center back spot that rotation happens so quickly because you're trying to clog up the spaces that are most dangerous next for the opponent and I think the best teams have those types of rotations down where they know where the space is that they need to go cover so they get there as quickly as possible and and cut it out and have each other's backs, really, I would say. I think that's the the major thing is knowing almost the responsibilities of the players around you defensively so you can go fill that spot. When you're talking about, you know, the best teams need to have each other's backs, need to be able to to adjust and be flexible. I think about Real Madrid when they were winning Champions League title after Champions League title. They had a back line that was aggressive when they had the ball, right? I mean, it was Marcelo going up one side and Carvajal going up the other side. These fullbacks bursting into the attack leaving oftentimes Rafael Varane and Sergio Ramos at the back to figure out how to cover the gaps. And so 
I think of Rafael Varane specifically of being able to cover so much ground in the back so that if whoever Real Madrid was playing got the ball and counterattacked down his side, Varane could very comfortably step wide and defend in an isolated position out wide and wait for his fullback to come back and give him support or wait for Sergio Ramos to come over and fill the space next to him. I think we see a need for modern, aggressive, athletic center backs in this idea of defensive rotations. Because if you don't have Mm -hmm. players that can cover for each other, if you don't have guys who can be suitable options at a number of different spots during the run of play, you're probably going to get exposed because you won't be able to keep up with the attacking team as they're rushing at you while you're trying to rotate. Yeah, I agree. That's a good, loud question. (laughs) It was loud. I think we should have, I do maintain we should have probably yelled throughout that entire response, but you know, what's done is done. Jordan, do you want to hit us with the next one? This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Yes. Okay. Di- Long Diagonals wants to know what are pressing cues. And I think we need to start, Joe, again, is maybe defining pressing cues and then giving a couple examples of what those could be. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm first wondering if long diagonals is just Greg Berhalter's burner account on Twitter, because that's something that Berhalter talks about a lot is that long diagonal out of the defensive midfield yeah. spot. So, Hey, you never know. 
Well, or Tim Raymond last game. He was just pinging <laughs> some balls. I was like, okay, long diagonal. There you go. Well, Anyways. Tim Ream, we're going to answer this question or, or we're going to get at what you're talking <laughs> about here. I feel like Tim Ream should know what a pressing cue is just because, yeah. I mean, just because he's a professional soccer player. But Tim, we're going to help you out anyway. Don't worry about it. Jordan, do you want to give us a baseline foundational understanding of what pressing cues are in a soccer context? Pressing cues are what you can actually see from the opposing team to say, all right, when this happens, we're going to go. So examples of pressing cues can be a pass from one center back to the next center back. And that can be a cue for a team to go and then press. It can be a back pass. I think Portland Timbers do a back pass, one of the best that I've seen. It can be a lofted ball, a ball in the air, uh, a long diagonal ball, correct? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where there's a lot of time for the opposing team, the defensive team to shift and then get pressure on the ball once it is received by its end target. Um, And also a poor pass. Anything that is uh, kind of bouncing into somebody or isn't getting to the recipient quickly and at ease, I think that can also be a pressing cue. Yeah, and I like those I like those illustrations, all of those different offensive things that can happen that tell the defense what to do. It makes me it makes me think about, you know, why are pressing cues or pressing triggers useful? Why do teams try to implement them into their defensive structure? And mm-hmm. I think about I think about the need for coordination. Teams need to be coordinated, yes. and that's why these are so important and that's why pressing cues or pressing triggers are so critical to a defense is is when you're stepping high up the field when you're pushing your players high up the field, there's so much risk involved in that, right? There's so much space that you're leaving in behind your defensive line. There's a lot of space that you can leave in midfield in certain spots that you're deliberately leaving open. And if your team isn't on the same page, if they're not clear on what their what their triggers are, what their cues are, it's going to be discombobulated. It's going to be it's mm-hmm. going to be out of sync. It's going to be all of those those issues are going to creep in and provide space for the offensive team to break the press. So pressing cues get at they get at uniting the defense and making sure that there's yeah. as limited that they limit their mistakes as much as they can because everyone should be at least should be on the same page yeah because soccer is hard coordinating 11 players to press together in a swift movement is a really difficult thing because i think one of the greatest things about this game is everybody sees the game differently which when you put 11 players out on the field that's why it always looks different because people interpret the game in different ways. But defensively, you don't want that. You, you want to have structure. Attacking-wise, yes, there's structure, but there's so much fluidity. Defensively, and as you mentioned, with the press and the high risk, you have to have certain things that allow you to say, okay, I know, I know it doesn't matter if I'm a forward or a defend, uh, center back. I know that if this happens, I can go. I think I also want to mention two other things that could potentially be pressing cues is advancement of the other team on the field. So you could say you're pressing cue. We're not going to press the ball until it comes to half field. We're not going to press the ball until it gets to a certain point on the field. Maybe it's the top of the circle or the top of the opponent's box. Maybe you're going all the way up, right? I think those can be cues and verbal cues as well. I think you can't forget verbal cues because if it's either coming from the sideline or coming from someone behind you, there's a lot of trust in a team that's pressing to say or are deciding if it's their cue to press. If a player behind me, say I'm playing in a, a 10 spot, if the six behind me is telling me to go press 
and yelling at me that that's the time that we should go and cueing me into that, you have to trust as a team that that person behind you can see more than you, therefore knows, all right, we can lock them in and win the ball back here. Yeah, I mean, if my if my teammate's yelling at me to go do that, I think that's a good cue for, for me and the rest of my teammates to step high up the field. I like how you pointed out there, Jordan, that pressing cues aren't necessarily all about high pressing. And I think of them as being yeah. all about high pressing with Jurgen Klopp or with Jesse Marsh and, and the rest of the Red Bull system. Those teams step high very often, but they don't step high all the time. And other teams, maybe Atletico Madrid under Diego Simeone or whatever team Jose Mourinho is coaching, these teams still have pressing cues. They're not high pressing cues necessarily. Their cue might be when the offensive team passes the halfway line or when they break into, you know, even deeper into the attacking half. If you set a line of confrontation and you say, okay, if the other team mm-hmm. passes this line, that's when we press as a unit, all 10 outfield players and the goalkeeper as well, stepping forward. That is very much a part of pressing cues as well. So it's not just about the high pressing, flashy defensive yeah. teams. It also is a very solid, important principle of teams that defend a little bit deeper in their own half. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. On to our next topic. This one is from Zach Beery, who asks, what is tactical periodization in training. Whoa, big word there, Zach. You're really making me whip out the, the dictionary here on this one. <laughs> Jordan, we, we texted a little bit about this. We, we had some back and forth about this before today's show because this, this is a big topic. It's a little bit more complicated, I think, than a lot of the other things that we've been through today. How do you uh-huh. want to start off? Uh, how do you want to start off and approach this topic? I just want to say that from a player's perspective, and that's where a lot of my knowledge comes from, is playing the game. The best coaches that I had, I this was happening and I didn't even know it was happening. <laughs> and I think that it really is kind of leads you into that tactical periodization and learning how to implement certain tactics in certain phases of the game is something that teams train. But I think it also happens, at least from the this is me as a, you know, a younger player, not really knowing what it was, what was happening, but training how to play and what our defensive structure was going to be before we trained and how we are going to attack out of that defensive structure. Those kind different periodizations and tactics that were implemented into our, you know, I think about college and the two weeks preseason that you have that there was a structure to it because my coach knew that if he coached defensive presence and shape before uh, offensive transition he knew he can get the most out of his team yeah so so this is a fascinating topic to me I'm just going to be honest this idea of tactical periodization is something that I could talk about for a really long time and read about a lot but I want to start we're not going to do that first of all I I will spare everyone for that um but I want (laughs) to start us by by defining on a basic level what the term means so what is tactical periodization well it's a timeline for, for training in soccer. It's a timeline mm-hmm. that gets teams ready for games, or even it can even extend it during the regular season. But soccer teams have a lot to work on. There's so many different parts of soccer. There's offense, there's defense, there's transition moments, there's set pieces. And even within all those things, there's individual and, and sub-levels to all of that stuff. But from a bird's eye view, there's even you know four, four main phases of play and more elements outside of that. So there's so many different things that teams need to work on in so little time. Managers have to figure out how to prepare their players to execute all of those different parts of soccer, at least at a competent level, ideally at a higher level, when they play games. And so preseason is the main focus of tactical periodization. It's how a manager sets their training schedule to 
to best get their team on the field playing how they want them to play. One of the things I think of, and I don't know if this is a great example, but I think of how typically the last part of a team that really seems to click when a team is built in um, a, a good built in a tactical way is is that final third right is scoring the goals is figuring out who how they can be that creative team to break down another team and i think about nashville this year and how their tactical periodization was probably so heavy on the defensive side of things and who they were going to be in their presence and their structure defensively that it took them the majority of the year to be that offensive, threatening, attacking team. But then when you combine those two things and you get to the point of the year where that happens, whether it's in a major league soccer season or it's a college soccer season, whatever it may be, um, you see how everything, if you train it correctly in those, in that, and you choose what works for you. And I think this is a hard thing, Joe, right? And every coach is going to have a different tactical periodization. Uh, you can really see it come together in certain moments and how they've worked all in, in incorporating all those different phases of the game. I know, actually, I'm going to be honest, I don't really know why it's called tactical periodization. I think periodization is is a timeline for training for all sorts of different things. It's how you spend different periods of time to do stuff. That's a guess because I don't actually know that. But for me, an easier way to understand and to think about tactical periodization is to think of it as tactical prioritization. It's what Mm. coaches are prioritizing in training because that's going to shape their team. You talked about it with Nashville. I think about it with, let's just go as big of an example as we can and think about it with Pep Guardiola. With Manchester City, if, if I had to guess or if I had to bet money on it, I would say Pep almost certainly emphasizes and prioritizes his team's offensive work, his play with the ball in the attacking half, even in the final third very early Mm -hmm. on or spends the most time working on those principles and how he can get his team to play effective attacking soccer with the ball. Maybe contrasting that with a a Jurgen Klopp who probably spends more time focusing on pressing cues or more time prioritizing defensive pressing moments and high pressing and attacking transition. I like how tactical periodization, to go back to its actual title, can give us an understanding of, of what teams are working on behind the scenes because we really don't get that insight. And we can, yeah. we can at least get a pretty close, pretty accurate guess from thinking about tactical periodization. Should we just change it right there? Zach Barry, we're going to change it. Tac- tactical priority. What did you call it? Tactical prioritization. <laughs> That's what we're going for. That's I'm not a sure hard word. Really oh, my gosh. Better. Prioritization. Yeah. Tactical prioritization. There yeah. you go. I think we have the power Changing to do that, it right, Jordan? Yeah, it's done. You do, definitely. Yes, yeah, I absolutely. Mean, this was this was invented by a guy named Vitor Frade in in Portugal <laughs> in I think the 1970s or the 1980s, and then apparently popularized by Jose Mourinho when he was coaching Porto mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. But we're just going to go ahead and and throw those guys out of there. Um, we've changed yeah, it forever, see you guys. and we've made it better. Who are they, anyways? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of a guy named Jose Mourinho before, so. I don't, no. yeah, Mm-mm. whatever. Um, Jordan, okay, let's move on to our next one. I can't remember if this is yours to read or if it's mine to read. I'm, go- I'm just going to go think- for it. Okay, go for Does it. Does that work for you? Yeah. Okay, this one is from LA Galaxy TO who says, I've heard you, I assume he means Jordan and I, discuss the city zone. I would love to hear more about that. Okay, so you and I have, Jordan, you and I have talked mm-hmm. about the Manchester city zone before. We stole this and actually a good amount of our tactical periodization topics and discussion from Bobby Warshaw, 
who's who's great, um, even though he's, his voice is no longer in the MLS media. Um, we, we've taken some of these things from Bobby Warshaw, and that's where I first heard this term. I know other people have used it. When I think about the Manchester City zone, I think about drawing vertical lines on the outside of the six-yard box. So on the sides of the box, that space between that vertical line that we've just drawn and the edge of the 18-yard box. So it's those mm-hmm. little corridors on the right and left side of the box that Manchester City under Pep have really really worked into their attacking plan. They'll always drive into those zones and try to create chances from there. So, Jordan, does that give us a a baseline understanding of what the Manchester City zone, at least what it is? I I think so. It's a good, it's a space that I think is a lot of the times underutilized in the buildup because you tend to be throwing a player in there or if a player is coming from central, a central spot, running into that space they're kind of running away from the goal in some way, shape, or form, which can make it really difficult on their positioning. But I think that the way that it can be implemented is if the passing and the timing of the run is correct, they should be arriving under little to no pressure, at least from a defender chasing them from from the goal. Yeah, I like how you moved it into, like, why do teams try to attack that zone? You're right. You're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. why is it effective? Why can this be a, a useful place of the field, a place inside the box to attack? And I, I was thinking about that before before we started recording. And I'm thinking about the different ways to attack at all, right? So the goal of soccer is to score goals. Most often those goals are going to come from inside the box. So then we think about, okay, how do teams attack the box? Or how should they attack the box? One way is to go, you know, just punch it right up the gut, right through the middle of the field. Formations and, and defensive approaches like the double pivot, like uh, like a 4-4-2 block, or just any formation that really congests the middle of the field, makes it difficult to break into the box from the middle. And that's what teams are trying to stop mm-hmm. you from doing. So that one's really hard. It's really effective if you can do it properly, but it's really, really difficult. So another way, if, if the middle isn't working and the middle is blocked off, another way is to get across into the box from the wing. That's fine, and, and most often teams will give you that because it's really hard to connect on crosses into the box. It's not a very accurate, precise method of attacking. So the Manchester City zone gets you the perfect balance between those two things, I think. It gets you a nice in-between between the middle and then the wing. The wing is inaccurate. The middle is really difficult. The, that corridor on the, the outer channel of the box is the, the perfect sweet spot. It allows you mm-hmm. to attack into the box without all of the pressure that comes from trying to attack in the middle of the field and with more precision than you get from those wide areas. I think it also allows, when I think about attacking this zone and I think about Manchester City who've done this so well, I think of Kyle Walker with the ball at his feet in the channel as far wide as he can be. And he's playing the ball into that city zone on a diagonal pass towards the end line with Kevin De Bruyne running into that space. And so what it gets you is it cre- you create space by the movement off the ball and then playing the ball into that zone. It's typically, I would say, Joe, a, a central midfielder running into that space. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think that's how Manchester City do it most often, for sure. And, and then you get, this is the benefit of it, is you get your best playmaker or the players that are as the best at finding the final pass. You get them into a more advanced position where they have a lot of players running at the frame of goal, whether it's their own team or the opposing team. 
So the odds of that ball, one, connecting from your best playmaker's foot to another teammate are really high. Or if you just send the ball in there at that um, more direct angle, a little bit closer to the frame of goal, there are so many players running towards the frame of goal that the odds of it going on frame are pretty high. I love that you brought up the fact that at least Manchester City have their central midfielders making those runs into into the Manchester City zone. They do that, I, I think, and what I've noticed is they do that because they're wide players. Let's think it. Let's just say it's Kyle Walker and Raheem Sterling on the wing on the mm-hmm. right side for Manchester City. They'll they'll use those two wide players to pull the opposition's left sided defenders out of position. So you've got you've got two defenders for the other team up against two defenders or two attackers rather for Manchester City. That then leaves a gap. It leaves a gap between the fullback and the the center back for the defense because the fullback's been pulled out of position by Raheem Sterling or by Kyle Walker. So then you bring that third man over. You overload the wing area with Kevin De Bruyne making that run into that Manchester City zone, getting on the ball, and then you play it into the box, and you've got bodies everywhere and and finishers making those runs to connect with the ball in those really well-coordinated, rehearsed patterns. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really genius attacking strategy and a really great area of the field to try to exploit. And I think, in general, it gets... Not that outside backs or wingers can't get into that space, but typically when you get the ball to the the channel or the wing, that's the space inevitably you want that player to attack is that city zone, right? To get in behind the defender, get as close as possible to the frame of the goal before they cross it because then the odds of that cross connecting are higher. So you, you're doing that in a totally different way as not in a 1v1 situation, maybe with an outside back or a winger, but you're doing that by pulling players out of the space, as you just mentioned, and then bringing one of your best playmakers with a run, a well-timed run into that space. And for U.S. men's national team fans, this zone of the field is something that Greg Berhalter is trying to get his attacking guys to attack into. He's trying to create a structure that gets, uh, maybe that gets Eunice Musa or gets Weston McKinney or or even the wide players who've tucked inside, Gio Reyna, Christian Pulisic. He's trying to get those guys into the Manchester City zone to then cut the ball back into the middle of the box. So if you're watching the U.S. in the future, hopefully in December and, and beyond in 2021, look out for that. See how well the U.S. attack that space and, and maybe take some notes on whether or not they're doing it effectively and let us know because I'll be watching for that same thing. Right. Jordan, let's do one more question. We've got time for one more on today's show from a spectacularly named soccer question asker. That, that's not a real thing. <laughs> but um, I'll let you take this one so that you can read the okay. majesty of this guy's name. Chris... Goal. Top I mean, notch, Chris. Get I mean, that's too good. It doesn't get better than that. <laughs> What's the difference between a modern attacking fullback and a wingback? Okay, for me, this is an example of soccer having some needlessly complicated or needlessly different terms. <laughs> I'm going to try to to make it as simple as possible because this is how I think of it. I think the wingback is the name for the outside defender when there are three center backs. And I think yes. of a fullback, modern, attacking, or otherwise, old, defending, doesn't matter, I think of a fullback as being the outside defender when there's two center backs. Is that is that pretty much what you think of it, Jordan? Yeah, I think that's pretty much you hit the nail on the head. And, and the responsibilities defensively are pretty can can be, I would say, pretty similar for both of those players as trying to get back. Whether it's a three center back situation or a two center back situation, they're still going to try to get and protect the channel of the field, right? 
But attacking wise, I think if you're looking at a modern attacking fullback and a wingback, they're still both trying to get forward with as much intensity as possible and, and to attack and create in their front half of the field, even front third. But the difference really is who's next to them, I would say, when you're talking about those words and the, the, the position in itself. Ben Chilwell plays for England and for Chelsea uh, as a left-sided outside defender. And when he plays for Gareth Southgate in England, he plays as a left wing back because England have three center backs between him and then the right wing back. But when he, when Chilwell goes back and plays for Frank Lampard in Chelsea, Lampard usually plays with a four of the back shape. That has two center backs, a right back, and a left back. In that shape, Chilwell is a left back. He's not a left wing back. He's a left-sided fullback. But in both of those systems, he's still responsible for defending the outside channel, and he's still responsible for getting high up into the attack to provide some some level of attacking uh, creativity or something in the final right. third or in the attacking yeah. half. The, the roles are remarkably similar. It's just the mm-hmm. terminology that changes depending on the number of players that are next to them. I love how you put that, Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Okay. From attacking fullbacks and wingbacks and the differences between those two things, or maybe the lack thereof... To Manchester City zones, to tactical periodization or prioritization. Jordan, we have talked a lot of tactical terms. We've talked a lot about tactical terms on today's show. Thank you so much for joining me and for for coming in and, and pinch hitting. I really appreciate it, Jordan. It was so much fun. I feel like that really flew by. So thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening and for listening to Jordan and I talk all about tactical things. We appreciate you. And the Total Soccer Show will be back again tomorrow with Ryan Bailey talking to a special guest. 